This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. Well, with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 22. And as you make your way to the 22nd chapter of Job, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. You see, it was back in the beginning of this book when we learned about the day when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, they heard about the pain and the suffering of their friend whose name is Job. And after receiving the bad news about their friend, you know, these guys decided to travel from their own homelands all the way to the land of Uz so that they could, you know, come and comfort and encourage Job, even providing him with some corrective counsel. Well, after arriving there uh, at the home of Job, uh, Eliphaz was the first to speak, and that, that was followed by Bildad, and then finally Zophar weighed in. And one by one, each of these men presented their perspective regarding the reason for why Job was suffering. And while they respectfully gave Job the opportunity to respond to them, you know, they were quick to reject his defense. And the reason why? Well, it's because they truly believed that Job deserved the punishment of the Lord. They believed that Job had sinned against the Lord and that he was deserving of God's punishment. Well, with that being the case, you know, Job's friends not only engaged in a second round of accusations, but now, here in our text tonight, we find Eliphaz, he's kicking off this third round as he continues to do his best to convince Job that Job needed to repent and then return to the Lord. And while I have no doubt that Eliphaz was serious and sincere, what he was failing to understand is that a person can be you know, more earnest than Jim Varney uh, and, and yet still be completely wrong. Now, as we make our way to, uh, through the, the chapter before us tonight, you know, I want to spend some time considering the problem with those who conflate sincerity with veracity. Or in other words, I want to consider the confusion of those who think that you know, because uh, you know, that, they, that, that they're sincere or earnest, that they must be right. I want to consider the confusion of those who think that their opinion is right on point because they're just really serious about it, you know, or they're sincere about their point of view, therefore it must be correct. As in the case with Eliphaz here, we'll soon see that a person can be completely sincere and yet be completely wrong. Well, with this as our focus, let's turn our attention to the 22nd chapter of Job. Here we find Eliphaz. He's presenting his third round of accusations against Job. And if you would, look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we read, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Eliphaz. He's addressing Job's request for an interview with God. That's what, that's what Job had asked for. That's what he had uh, you know, cried out for. And I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 10. That's where Job declared this. He says, "'My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint.'" I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. 
from that back in chapter 10, we saw that Job was asking the Lord to come and present his case for why he was punishing Job. And, and, and so Job wanted to know from the Lord why he was being punished. And, and then later on in chapter 13, uh, that's where Job declares, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. Yeah, he wants to have a little back and forth with God. He, he wants to have a little debate with the Lord about why he's you know, suffering in the way that he was suffering. Job truly believed that he was ready uh, to to stand before the Lord and plead his case. Well, when we get to Job chapter 38, we'll see how all that works out. You see that in Job 38, we learn about the day when the Lord actually granted Job's request. But rather than answering Job's questions, the Lord proceeded to present Job with a long list of questions regarding the multitude of things that he had absolutely no clue about. The Lord is going to show up in chapter 13, 38, I should say, and, and, and just present Job with a long list of things that Job takes for granted and demands no, no answer for. And for example, you know, the, we'll, we'll see the Almighty asking him about the creation of the earth and, and how it was formed and how it hangs from nothing and, and the bounds of the sea and why the ocean stops where it stops. And the Lord will ask him about the nature of light you know, what is, the, is, is, what is light, you know, or, or the hydrolo- hydrologic cycle. And, and he's going to ask Job about the stars and the constellations. And, and not only that, but he also presents questions about the, uh, the animal kingdom, including, you know, the uh, nature of dinosaurs and whatnot. And we'll see God just presenting Job with question after question after question. And in the middle of the interview, not even, not even getting to the end of it, but in the middle of the interview, Job declares this in, in chapter 40. He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job quickly realizes that he wasn't wise enough to really question the plans and the purposes of God. He, you know, in, in chapters 10 and, and in chapters 13, you know, we, we see Job like, you know, I, I, I've got questions for God. You know, I, I, I demand an interview with God. I expect God to show up and explain himself. And when God shows up, Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, I'm going to be quiet now. Not so smart after all. Well, considering... Job's desire to have this interview with God, Eliphaz begins his third argument by reminding Job that the Lord wasn't looking for his wise counsel regarding the Almighty's decision, you know, to, uh, at least in the mind of Eliphaz, punish Job. Eliphaz thought that God was punishing Job. Job thought that God was punishing Job. Everybody thought that God was punishing Job, and nobody had an explanation why, but Eliphaz rightly says, hey, God doesn't need your help in making his decisions. Now, Eliphaz was wrong in thinking that God was the one who was punishing Job, and Job was wrong for thinking that God was the one punishing Job. Remember, it was Satan who was permitted to attack Job. And yet, regarding God, even God's decision to allow Satan to attack Job, listen, the omniscient one doesn't need help from us. The omniscient one, the all-knowing creator, doesn't need our wise, wise counsel, right? Because he's got it figured out, and we don't. God doesn't need our help when it comes to all of his plans and purposes. We might think he needs our help, and we might spend a lot of our prayer time you know, trying to convince God that we have a better plan. 
but it's just foolishness. Listen, even those who are the wisest of the wise here on the earth are still fools when we compare their wisdom to the omniscience of God. You might be the smartest cookie on on the planet, and yet in comparison to God, you know, how wise really are you? I like the way that Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's verse 25 where Paul declares, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Without debate, the wisdom of God is so much greater than the wisdom of man. And with that, it would be foolish for us to think that the almighty omniscient one needs our counsel. Like he needs our input in him making his decisions. Sadly, though, there are many Christians who are upset with God because God didn't accept their advice. You know, God, God didn't go with their, you know, uh, desired plan, if you will. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then I encourage you to realize that God is always right. It really is that simple. If something doesn't work out your way, don't be upset with God. He probably spared you from some horrible disaster. God is always right. And while I realize that many, if not most of us, are convinced that God needs our help, please trust me when I tell you that the wisest and the most righteous people on the planet aren't able to guide God into some better plan. We just we don't have that kind of wisdom. Rather than trying to convince God to come and bless our plans, Well, we'd do well to simply seek the guidance of God and then submit to his perfect plan. Rather than trying to convince God that our plan is the best plan, we would do well to say, God, what is your plan for my life? What is your plan for my life? And then just help me to submit to that, knowing that that's going to be the best plan. In this way, we would avoid making all the mistakes that people tend to make as they walk in the extremely limited wisdom that we have within our own being. Well, with this as the plan here and with the goal of submitting to the Lord, let's continue to consider the argument that Eliphaz was presenting here in Job chapter 22. If you would, let's pick up at verse 4. Here, Eliphaz goes on to ask, Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Eliphaz. He's throwing a few jabs at Job here. And just to be clear... Eliphaz was effectively asking, listen, if you're as pious as you claim to be, Job, then why is God punishing you? If you're as pious as you claim to be, then why is God punishing you with righteous judgment? And in verse 5, Eliphaz came right out and accused Job of engaging in great wickedness as well as iniquity without end, which is to say just limitless sin. And while I have no doubt that Eliphaz truly believed that the judgment of God was evidence of Job's wickedness, we must not fail to realize that his earnest opinion was completely wrong. Know what I mean, Vern? Twice no on that one, huh? All right, we'll we'll move right along. Listen, the Lord himself acknowledged that Job was a faithful servant. The Lord was the one back in Job chapter 2 who referred to Job as a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. 
And from this, we can see that Eliphaz was completely wrong. He was completely incorrect about the wickedness of Job. Job was not living in wickedness. And while I have no doubt that Eliphaz was sincere, well, he was sincerely wrong. Now, with this in mind, let's continue to consider the false accusations that Eliphaz was lodging against Job. And if you would look with me again here at Job chapter 22, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 6. Here, Eliphaz declares, For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. Yeah, Job literally walked around town just stripping clothes off of people and saying, Give me those clothes, those are mine. Really? Is that what Job was doing? Verse 7, you have not given the weary water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry, but the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. Now, uh, this is quite the list of accusations here, and I can't help but to wonder, where did these accusations come from? You know, Eliphaz, you know, did not live in this region. You know, he had traveled a, a, you know, a great distance to come and counsel his friend here. So, so where did he learn about these accusations against Job? Well, with this question in mind, let's back up and revisit a statement that Job made at the end of chapter 1. Look with me back at, at Job chapter 21, Beginning there at verse 27, there Job says to his friends, Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would, do, would, would wrong me. For you say, Where is the house of the prince and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel on the road? And do you not know their signs? From this we can see that Eliphaz, well, he probably heard the accusations that were being made by those who were spreading rumors on the roadways or in the public spaces, and they had probably come into town and inquired and, and asked you know, those who were out on the streets, you know, hey, what's, what's going on with Job? What's happening there you know, with, with the suffering of Job? And they probably heard all kinds of different rumors. And some were saying, yeah, he's you know, stealing clothes, or you know, he's stealing bread from people, or... You know, he's doing all these things, you know, he's beating up widows and yeah, they heard all the rumors and they believed him. Rather than showing up at the home of their friend and saying, hey, this is what people are saying. Is there any, is there any truth to this? No. Nope. These guys just jumped to the wrong conclusion because this is what the people were saying. And the rumors seemed right to them, and the reason why is because why else would Job be suffering in this sort of way? Why else would God be punishing Job if this weren't the case? And yet, in reality, God wasn't punishing Job. God had simply allowed Satan to come and attack him. With that, you know, as we consider the rumor mill and as we consider... You know, what is a very real problem every day for, for most people, you know, and, and, and that's the problem of, you know, keeping our mouths closed when we don't know what we're talking about, right? But I want to consider the way that King Solomon addresses this in Proverbs chapter 18. It's verse 17 where he declares, the first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. In other words, you know, the, the one who's quick to speak up and tell their story or to present their point of view or whatever, it probably sounds right. And a lot of us are quick to go, oh, okay, you know, that sounds right, so I'll believe it. I mean, why would they lie? 
Well, sometimes people aren't lying. They, they, they're just deceived themselves. They heard something that came from somebody who, who heard something that came from somebody who heard something. And we call that CNN. But so... But seriously, you know, I mean, people, you know, just pick up rumors and think it's true because they trust the person who told it to them, and, and yet it might not be true after all. So the first one to plead the case sounds correct until the neighbor comes along and cross-examines, right? And then all of a sudden it's, it's not so clear-cut anymore. When a, when a person comes to us with accusations against another person, don't just believe it. That you, might, you might trust the person and think, you know, they would never you know, purposely try to deceive you, and yet they themselves may have been deceived. So don't just receive an accusation against another person because somebody said so. They might not have all the facts. Therefore, rather than becoming a tale-bearer of that gossip, we ought to invite the accuser who came to us to go and meet with the one they're accusing so that we can hear both sides of the story. And then we can get down to the bottom of things, Right? With that, I should also remind you about the instructions that Paul presented in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's there where he declares, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Paul understood that many times the pastors of churches are the ones to be you know, accused and, and, uh, because of their position. You know, The enemy wants nothing more than to take pastors out of their position, and so it's not uncommon even there in the first century, for those in those leadership positions to have people coming against them with false accusations. And so Paul says, look, if one person comes to you with an accusation against an elder, it's not enough. There needs to be two or three witnesses. If someone comes to you with accusations against leaders here in this church, maybe maybe what they're saying is true. It's also possible that it's a lie. That's why you need to ask them, hey, do you have two or three witnesses that you can bring to the table here? You got two or three people who can corroborate your, your accusation. And if they can produce two or three witnesses, then together this group ought to go and confront the person, that's the, the, the leader that's being accused. The leaders in our church aren't above accusation. You know, we're not trying to set up some sort of papacy and priesthood here where people can't be accused. I mean, we're all, we're all struggling. We're, we're, we all struggle to walk in, in righteousness. And so if there's an accusation against an elder, let's, let's bring the, the witnesses together and let's sit down and talk about it. If the accuser cannot produce more witnesses, like two or three, you know, you should simply invite the accuser to go ahead and meet up with the leader that's being accused so that the light of truth can shine on the situation. And so that you can get down to the bottom of both sides of the story. And in this way, we can work together to protect our church against unfounded accusations while also protecting our church against maybe leaders who are beginning to backslide. You know, we want to protect our church from from both sides of this. And so rather than just, you know, jumping into the rumor mill and and spreading rumors that you heard about some leader who may have said or done something, no, 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 Let's, let's get everybody together Let's shine the light of truth on the situation and get down to the bottom of it. And that's how mature Christians deal with these things. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that our all-knowing creator knows when we're spreading rumors about others. If we are one of those who are spreading rumors about leaders or one another and that sort of thing, 
You know, you might think that you're getting away with something, but listen, God knows everything. And I want to consider how Eliphaz puts it here in Job chapter 22. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 12. Here Eliphaz asks, Is not God in the height of heaven? And see, uh, see the highest stars, how lofty they are. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see, and he walks above the circle of heaven. Now, here in these verses, we find Eliphaz, he's now challenging Job about the wisdom of our omniscient creator. And while they both knew that our creator is able to see everything from his heavenly throne, Eliphaz begins to put words in the mouth of Job here by insisting that, well, Job seems to believe that the Lord wasn't able to actually see all of his sins because of the dark canopy of clouds that separate us from God. In order to grasp the sort of accusation that Eliphaz is making here, I want to consider the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered these verses. They put uh, verses 12 through 14 like this. God is so great, higher than the heavens, higher than the farthest stars. But you reply, that's Eliphaz accusing Job, you reply, that's why God can't see what I am doing. How can he judge through the thick darkness? For thick clouds swirl about him, and he cannot see us. He is way up there walking on the vault of heaven. So Eliphaz is putting words now into Job's mouth by insisting that Job's, Job's position must be that, well, God can't see me, so I can do whatever I want. And, and, and it's from this perspective that Eliphaz is accusing Job of thinking that God is less than omniscient. Now listen, we know that this isn't the case at all, and all we have to do is go back to Job chapter 9. It's actually in Job 9 verses 2 through 10. That's where Job declares, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes the mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. I mean, this is, this is Job's perspective on God. Job was a man who believed in in the almightiness of God. He believed in God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. And he most certainly believed in God's omniscience, that he was all-knowing. That being the case, we can be certain that Eliphaz was putting words into the mouth of Job so that he could feel justified in his false accusations against Job. And Christian, listen, if you have to make things up in order to make your point, like Job was doing, or like Eliphaz was doing, I should say, against Job, if you have to make things up to make your point, then chances are your perspective isn't as solid as you believed it was. Listen, if you're presenting your argument and and you're trying to present your list of all the reasons and you got one reason and then two reasons, and you don't have a third one, so you just go, you know, da-da-da-da-da, Da-da-da-da-da, yada-yada-yada. If that's one of your points, you don't have a third point. You know, if, if, if in your argument you quickly run out of reasons 
and so you give the whole da-da-da-da-da statement, then you don't, you don't have anything. Da-da-da-da-da is not a detail. It's, well, I think I know other things, but I just can't remember them right now. Really? It must not have impacted you that, 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 that much then. So, so listen, da-da-da-da-da is not a detail. It's typically the incoherent rambling of a person who doesn't really have a case. If you find yourself with the da-da-da-da-da detail, realize it's just da-da-da-da-da. That's all it is. We need to stop trying to make things up so that something sounds worse than it actually is. We don't need to like create drama you know, and create non-details just to, just to you know, bolster our own point. And if you are making things up like Eliphaz, don't appeal to the almighty authority of God as the proof of your point. Think about it. Eliphaz here is appealing to the omniscience of God. He's basically saying, well, you say that God is not omniscient, but God is omniscient, so he can see your wickedness, therefore I'm right. This is nothing more than an appeal to authority. Well, God's on my side, so I'm right. Really? Like, like, like anybody just can't say that. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm just standing with God, that's all. That's, all, that's all I'm doing. Well, the Bible's on my side, so I'm right, right? Eliphaz was appealing to the omniscience of God while simultaneously putting words into Job's mouth. And what this means is that Eliphaz was failing to realize that the Lord was able to see how Eliphaz was actually sinning against Job. Eliphaz is saying, God can see your sin, Job, while simultaneously failing to realize that God was looking at his sin. And the same is true for us. Listen, you know, if you're prone to walking around accusing everybody else of sinning, well, be careful because God sees your sin too. And so before we try to prove our perspective by putting words in the mouth of another person and creating false accusations, I just encourage you to remember that our omniscient God knows the truth. And we might be able to fool some of the people some of the time, but we can fool God none of the time because God sits outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows exactly what we're doing. Before we make up you know, false details like da-da-da-da-da, before we falsely accuse others with faulty information, I just encourage you to remember that, that, that God is enthroned above the vault of heaven. Eliphaz was right about that. And from that perspective, he knows when we're lying. And so let's put away lying as Paul encouraged us to do, and, and let's speak the truth with one another, knowing that this will be a benefit to all of us. And not only should we abstain from full-throated lies, but we should also avoid, avoid the false accusations which are camouflaged through the use of fallacious, loaded questions. And to, to explain my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 22. You would look with me here, beginning at verse 15. Here, Eliphaz presents a couple of loaded questions by asking, Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? They said to God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. And the innocent laugh at them. Surely our, adversary, our, our adversaries, uh, adversaries, thank you, uh, easy for me to say. Surely our adversaries are cut down and the fire consumes their remnant. Now, here in these verses, we find Eliphaz presenting Job with a couple of loaded questions. 
And to sum it up with simplicity, he's basically asking Job if he was finally going to repent. And, uh, you know, he's basically saying, hey, look, look, Job, are you going to repent or are you going to continue to remain on the path of wickedness, which will result in your destruction, of course? Now, listen, this would have been an excellent challenge for someone who was, in fact, living in sin. If Job were, in fact, living in sin, walking in wickedness, this would have been a great question to ask him. But, but he wasn't walking in wickedness, and so therefore this question is actually what we call a loaded question. And just to be clear, a loaded question is a logical fallacy which is presented by the interrogator who presents a question which includes an implicit or unproven assumption. And these questions are oftentimes loaded, that's why we call them loaded questions, they're, they're loaded with inflammatory accusations designed to invoke a defensive response. For example, a person might ask a parent, have you stopped beating your children? That's a loaded question. Because if you answer yes, I have stopped beating my my children, then you've also confessed that you were previously beating your children. And maybe you were, I don't know. But uh, that's an issue for CPS. So, but seriously, you know, what what you have here is if you answer yes or no, you're agreeing with the accusation. You might ask a coworker, are you still embezzling money from the company? Well, if you haven't yet proven that, that they're embezzling money, then the question is loaded with the accusation. Or you might ask the political leader, you know, has your son stopped bringing cocaine to the White House? I, I mean, it, it's maybe a question that we ought to ask. But so, Listen, in this case, Eliphaz is presenting Job with a loaded question, which is found there in verses 15 and 16. There he declares, Will you keep the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by by a flood? It's loaded with the question that Job is already walking on the path of wickedness, and so he's asking, Will you keep walking on the path of wickedness? If Job answers no then it implies that he was walking on the path of wickedness and, and is no longer. If he says yes, then he's just you know, admitting to the guilt of it, right? But the question itself is based upon an unproven accusation that Job was walking on this old path of wickedness, which was then wiped off the face of the earth with the flood. Well, knowing that he wasn't actually walking on the path of wickedness, we can say with all certainty that this loaded question was nothing more than a false accusation that was hidden within this question. I'll remind you that Eliphaz truly believed that Job was living in sin. And while it's true that he had yet to actually prove that Job was living in sin, he was still sincerely concerned about the spiritual state of his friend. And it's for this reason that he tried to lead Job back to the Lord. And with this in mind, let's turn our attention now uh, back to the argument that he's presenting here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there at Job chapter 22. I want to begin reading at verse 21 because here Eliphaz declares, Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him. He will hear you, and you will pay your vows. 
Now, here in these verses, we find Elvaz, he, he's pleading with Job so that he might repent of his wickedness and return to the Lord. And as we take a closer look at these verses here, we actually find Eliphaz making some theologically rich statements. For example, it's there in verse 2 where he reveals the connection you know, between our relationship or acquaintance with the Lord and the peace that fills our hearts. And in this way, you know, he was helping Job to see that those whose mind is fixed on the Lord will then also be able to rest in the perfect peace of our Savior. And so we, we ought to make sure that we are the acquaintance of God, or in other words, that we have a relational connection with Christ so that we can also uh, have peace in our relationship with the Prince of Peace. We should also notice what Eliphaz said there in verses, verse 22 and 23. There he declares, receive please instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. In you return to the Almighty. You will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Now this statement here reminds me of the encouragement that's found in the 119th Psalm. It's verse 11. There the psalmist declares, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love that. Those who hide the word of God in their heart will also receive the wisdom we need to turn from the path of wickedness. And so he says, you know, the Eliphaz says there in, in verse 22, please you know, receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. I like to think about that like a slam dunk. Lay up the words in, in your heart, you know. Take the word of God and just get it into your heart so that you might not sin against him. Then after referring to the gold of Ophir there and, and, and about the way that, you know, the, that he would be enriched with gold so that he's even using it uh, in the pathways there, it's verse 24 where Eliphaz goes on to insist that the Lord is actually our reward. Look with me at verse 25 where he declares, Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Would it be to God that we would really grasp this incredible truth? Because as people pursue the wealth of this world, they end up with a gold that quickly perishes. But those who see God as the reward, those who see God as the gold and the silver that we're pursuing, well, we get to enjoy that for the rest of eternity. The Lord is our greatest reward. We have to keep that in focus. And, and if you see the Lord as the greatest reward, reward, then listen, where your heart is, there your, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as we begin to look at God as our greatest reward, then our heart is there with him. And we lift up then our heads to, to seek his face. And not only that, but to worship him. And with that, look with me here at verse 27. Here Eliphaz goes on to declare, you will make your prayer to him. He will hear you and you will pay your vows. Uh, here we find Eliphaz, he's encouraging, encouraging Job not only to lift up his head to seek the Lord, but to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord with prayers as well as with offerings. And listen, this is excellent counsel for every believer here tonight. If you want to stay on the straight and narrow, then you have to make sure that your heart is with the Lord. And one way to make sure that our heart is with the Lord is through prayers and offerings. Because listen, those are the first two things that you'll start giving up as soon as your heart is no longer with the Lord. 
as your heart begins to deviate from the Lord, well, what backslider is going to spend time praying? And as, as you begin to walk away from the Lord, well, what backslider is going to give their money to the Lord? And so those ought to be two red flags in your life. That the, the, the minute you're done praying or, or, or you're dropping off in your prayer life and the minute you no longer want to use your cash uh, to support the work of the Lord, well, chances are, it's, I'm not saying it's 100% of the time, but chances are you're beginning to, to deviate from the straight and narrow path. So let's make sure that we're lifting up our, our heads to the Lord, we're, we're seeking his face, we're praying to him, and we're financially committed to furthering the gospel message during our time here on this earth. Eliphaz also encouraged Job by helping him to realize that the Lord is ready to forgive those who will humbly repent. And I want to consider how Eliphaz explains it here in, in the final verses of this chapter. Look with me there beginning at verse 28. Here he declares, you will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down and you say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Eliphaz, he's helping Job to understand that the Lord was ready to reestablish him if he would just humbly repent of his sins and return to the Lord. And I love that because, you know, again, Eliphaz is wrong about where Job was actually at spiritually. And yet, this is still a truth for the backslider. For the backslider, the Lord is always ready to receive and, and, and reestablish the relationship and build up the backslidden believer who comes back. Listen, if you've backslidden and, and now you're at the point where you're thinking, I, I mean, how could God ever receive me back to himself? Listen. The Lord's mercies are new every single day. He is always ready to receive the backslidden believer. And Eliphaz also assured Job here that those who have been cleansed through repentance and the remission of sins will also then be able to help other unbelievers to be delivered from the punishment which will eventually come upon those who will not repent. And from this, we can see here that Eliphaz not only wanted to help Job to return to the Lord, but he also wanted to remind Job about the higher purpose and the higher plan of, of those who submit themselves to the Lord and then turn around and help the wicked to humbly repent so that they can also receive the forgiveness of sins. This, this is a great commission of sorts being offered up by Eliphaz. He's saying, hey, Job, come back to the Lord and let the Lord clean your hands, and that way you can use those clean hands to help others to come to the Lord. I love it. And what's truly amazing about Eliphaz's perspective here is that he's presenting this plan, which is very much you know, uh, in line with the Great Commission of Christ Jesus. He presented this 2,000 years before the cross of Christ. And so even during the, the, the days of Job here, those who loved the Lord knew that salvation was a free gift of grace, which is received by those who humble themselves before the Lord. So Eliphaz is just pointing forward to the Messiah as he encourages Job to become the evangelist that he's supposed to be. And while it's true that the Old Testament saints, they looked forward to the arrival of the Messiah, well now here, almost 2,000 years you know, after Christ, we look back. They looked forward to the cross, and we look back to the cross, both being saved by faith 
in the promised Messiah. As we look back 2,000 years to the cross of Christ, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord not only wants to cleanse our hands by faith in him, but he wants to use us to then help others come to, to, to the cross so that they can be saved as well. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, there should be no doubt here that Eliphaz, he was right on regarding the way in which the Lord saves those who humbly trust in him. He was right on point, and yet at the same time, he was completely incorrect about the spiritual situation of Job. You see, Job was not walking in wickedness, and so there was no reason for him to repent and return to the Lord. He wasn't some sort of backslidden believer. And what this means then is that Eliphaz was the one who needed to repent, and the reason why is because he had been engaging in false accusations against Job. He was spreading lies and rumors against Job. And so Eliphaz was the one that needed to repent. And while I have no doubt that Eliphaz was sincerely trying to help his friend, he was sincerely wrong about the spiritual state of Job. I believe that he was completely earnest in in his attempt to bring Job back to a relationship with the Lord. But listen, Job's real struggle was just simply trying to understand why God was allowing him to suffer in these ways. And we'll consider more about that as we make our way through the book. But with all this in mind, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that we can be sincere about something and be sincerely wrong. And we've got to get past this idea that, well, because I think something is true, therefore it is true. Not necessarily. It may be, it it may not be. We can be completely earnest about all of our endeavors to to go and minister to a friend or a family member who seems to be suffering in some sort of state of maybe maybe a backslidden believer or something like that. And we can have our perspective on the situation and think that we know exactly what they need to hear and all these sorts of things and then be completely wrong regarding our perspective of the situation. And so we have to really consider that. That we we might think that we're omniscient only to then find out that we're not. That being the case, you know, we should, we should first make it our aim to, to be led by the Holy Spirit rather than by the rumor mills or by our own point of view. Let's make sure that we're being led by the Holy Spirit as we set out to help our friends and family members who appear to possibly be backsliding. At the same time, we should also spend some time listening to the perspective of the person we're trying to help. I like the way that James puts it in James chapter 1. It's verses 19 and 20. There he declares, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's been said that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to be swift to hear, ready to listen, and then slow to the prescription. Before we rush to the point where we're presenting our perspective because you know, we think that we're right and everybody else has to line up with what we're saying and these sorts of things, let's, let's instead make sure that we've taken the time to listen to the loved one that we're trying to help. 
And in this way, we can be sincere and sincerely right as we offer the counsel that the Lord puts on our heart. And in this way, we can help others to also walk by faith with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.